Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on, and after a quick-fire run of events, we've got some breathing space to take stock of the season so far and reflect on what we've learned over the race weekends at the Red Bull Ring and the Hungara Ring. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to take listener questions about the 2020 F1 season so far are Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. Uh, Scott, I must admit, I'm quite disappointed because you informed me you'd, you'd visited a, a barber and had a had a professional shave, but I was expecting a clean-shaven version of you, but you seem you seem as uh, unhirsute as ever. No, that's not fair. I I look considerably less um, homeless than I did before. Um, I was I was uh, I was scruffy uh, to an extreme degree. I think for the first three races of the season, I put it down to a a, li- uh, a lingering spell of misery after all of this time spent sort of in isolation. Um, but I have visited a uh, barbershop and had a, a nice trim, a bit of a bit of a beard sort out as well. I had a cutthroat razor up on under the neck as well. First time I've had one of those. Genuinely fearful. All I could think of was Sweeney Todd while it was happening. Uh, so I'm glad I didn't go for the for, for the full treatment. Otherwise, I think I would have been. Uh, I think I would have been in, in hysterics. And how about you, Mark Hughes? You're... I've not had a haircut, no. Well, I had one when I was in Austria. Um, I'm, I, I sometimes go to Turkish barbers. Have you ever tried that, Scott? They actually set fire to your hair. I, no, I haven't tried it. There's a Tur- there is a Turkish barber near me, but I'm definitely not going to try it out now. Yeah, yeah. It's quite, it's quite exciting. It adds a little bit of, you know, a little bit of um, adrenaline to a trip to the barbers. The Michael Jackson experience. I was thinking more crazy world of Arthur Brown hair on fire <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> i once saw him live entirely unexpectedly supporting robert plants at the cambridge corn exchange so there we go he didn't set fire to himself though so 
on your edge. No, exactly, exactly. It wasn't so. That wasn't so long ago, actually. I think that was at a time when Arthur Brown and uh, Robert Plant were not in their first flush of youth, shall we say? But again, I've digressed there. Scott's looking slightly baffled by our musical references there, uh, being uh, being the youth of today. Uh, but anyway. Uh, like I say, listener questions today. So we're going to try and get through as many as we possibly can. We shall rotate between us in terms of who takes the question. So it's going to be Mark, you first. This is from Usman Haman Tukur, who asks, what's the ideal organisational structure for F1 teams? Say Ferrari was pretty much the only team using the flatter structure. Does this really affect them? And what's Mercedes' structure currently? And I think you should use this question as a chance to discuss Ferrari and its performance departments and the whole question of, of team structure. Yeah, uh, there isn't really an ideal structure, I don't think. It, it, it all depends on the individual circumstances of, of each team. You sort of, sort of tailor, t- tailor the structure to um, work around your, your talent to an extent. Um, I think um, Ferrari, in terms of vertical and horizontal, the sort of buzzwords that came in from um, the outside business world by um, Sergio Marchionne in the case of Ferrari, and he instigated a, a bit of a revolution there in 2016. And instead of having the department heads just leading the the the, the team under under them and saying, "Right, we're doing this, we're doing this, and we're doing this," um, they had a, um, a a system whereby everybody within each group was encouraged uh, to come up with ideas. In fact, um, you know, the, the 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 owners was on them to come up with ideas, and the. Uh, the technical head would then work through those uh, ideas and uh, choose which ones were appropriate or which he thought was appropriate and, and move on from there. And it did seem to bring a new impetus of um, creativity to Ferrari because with exactly the same personnel as before, the after years of making cars that were just sort of variations of what had worked previous years on other with other teams, they suddenly became the, the the cutting edge in terms of aero innovation, and the 2017 and 18 cars they were um, probably the most aerodynamically advanced cars in the field and were widely copied. And it was the first time you had Red Bull and Mercedes. First time in living memory, you had Red Bull and Mercedes actually copying features of that rather than the other way around. So that did seem to work, but the current um, feeling of um, Batia Bonotto is that it's become a little bit unwieldy in a, when a, a problem is struck when you when you're trying to contain um, multiple multiple different um, problem areas and he's decided it's time to revert to a more conventional system where you just got department heads um, going and you know working with the other department heads and everything being coordinated in that way and um, Enrico Cardiel is the the um, the the guy aerodynamicist, but he's the guy that's been put in charge of the um, performance, um, the, the, the performance development. Is it performance development department? PDD, I think it's called. And essentially, that's the old tech director role, because um, basically he has uh, every all the head department heads, all the technical department heads, whether it be aero, mechanical, engine, track engineering, they all report to him. So, in a, in effect, it addresses the uh, questioning or the the criticism of uh, Benotto trying to be both a team principal and a tech director. So, there is now a de facto tech director, even though it's got a different name. And when it comes to things like structures and that kind of thing, the key is that it that it works well, isn't it? There's there's a, a number of different structures that can 
can have benefits and, and be made to work. But it's all about communication and objectives and making sure you're all working in broadly the, the same direction. But do you think this is going to be one of those things that has a, a big instant impact on Ferrari? I don't think it's going to fundamentally change the problems they've got with the engine, for example. So it's, uh, it, it's more a, a longer-term tweak than anything else, isn't it? Yeah, quite. I think um, the fact the, the, I mean, the, the power units are a completely different um, problem. That's not to do with the organisation. That's the, 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 the structure. That's to do with uh, specific um, changes that have been made in the application of the regulations. Or um, the, the, mm, you have to be careful how I phrase it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, stricter implementation of the technical regulations as defined by the recent tech directives. Um, but the fact that Ferrari have made this change without because what you have historically seen with ferrari when they've had um a crisis is uh, that they they just fire people there's blood on the walls and it's it's all just everything everyone is is running for cover and hoping that they, they they're not chosen to to be the, the the sacrifice um and that's not happened this time so that's encouraging so uh, let's let's give them a little bit of time, and but it, yeah, I think we are talking about um, certainly not this season. I, don't, I doubt whether we're going to see any uh, visible effect on track of, of a structural change. Certainly this season. Scott, we'll come on to you for your question now. This is from Benji Huntrods at Benji Huntrods on Twitter. It says if they race in Europe in October, will teams have to develop ice tyres? Sounds pretty fun, right? Obviously, this is referring to the extra European races that have been added. I think, in fact, one of them's Imola is probably going to creep into November by the uh, by the looks of it. Last time I was at Imola in November, there was some snow on the track. So, uh, yeah, what what do you make of, of that and the the addition of yet more European races? I think it's indicative of the fact that Formula One wants to do whatever it can to to maximise the number of races available. So that does mean a um, very much a Eurocentric calendar, and I think it will end up being. I'd be, I would imagine, more than seventy-five percent European races this season. Um, so it's just pragmatism from Formula One's point of view. Yeah, the I get, I like the, I like the idea of ice tires. If it snows at the Nurburgring or or Imola, um, then that could cause problems. Absolutely, uh, you just have to hope that it'll be good enough. I suppose by the time that we get there to actually. Um, to, to actually cope uh but it's basically it's um it's in place of races in the americas and uh not necessarily in place of asia but but definitely the americas because um we've known for a long time that races like singapore and japan weren't happening but the the, the canadian grand prix still had hopes um it didn't look very good for the united states mexico and brazil but now all four of them definitely aren't happening so there's a big hole in the calendar that can be filled and so you've got this unusual trio of races we've already had Mugello join the 2020 calendar and now we've got imola coming back algarve hosting a race for the first time and the nurburgring cinderella story right off the bracket wasn't even in the mix it seemed and now that's back on the calendar first time since 2013 i would imagine Nurburgring so it's interesting I like that F1 has been willing to be creative with it Imola is going to have a, a two-day format which is slightly different fans at Algarve as well I think um, so quite cool um, in 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 one sense I think it will come with its own logistical challenges from a temperature and weather point of view but hey it's better to have free races in the cold isn't it than have none at all yeah that's a good way of looking at it and uh, yeah we have had uh 
races in, uh, should we say, suboptimal European conditions in the past. So I don't think we need to be uh, too worried about that. But yeah, there is that that risk uh, as you get later in the season of snow. One of the things that a lot of people have uh, have clocked with this um, big European focus is obviously it means that you're going to have the vast majority of races in Europe and therefore, uh, and then finish with probably two in Bahrain and uh, one in Abu Dhabi. There is still the hope of maybe one or two races in Asia, but it's very much going to be a European Formula One championship with a couple of races elsewhere at the end. So that brings us quite nicely on to... Um, Onto another question that we've had from Ye Old Autosport, Ed, asking if they don't race outside of Europe this season, does that negate any claims Hamilton, Mercedes or anyone else has of being called world champion? Well, there's a couple of uh, different ways to, to look at it. To, to look at it in technical terms, shall we say, because this is, this is addressed by the FIA's rules, the FIA Sporting Code. Uh, Article 2.4, for those who want to look it up, does say that the, only the FIA can bestow world championship status. It's various stipulations. It requires four manufacturers and at least three continents. Uh, the ISC only says that FIA may withdraw world status. It's not obliged to take away this status. And there's also provision that does allow the FIA to grant a waiver for a series that can show long-standing, long-established use of the word world to justify it so it, it will be considered a world championship because it is the world championship and it's force majeure it's unusual circumstances it had a compliant calendar the reason it doesn't have a compliant calendar is uh, is down to external factors in the COVID-19 pandemic obviously it's, it's quite a fun thought because it is going to be a heavily European championship now although there's going to be 100% a few Middle East races in Abu Dhabi and Bahrain as you say so that uh, means it spreads its wings a, a little bit more part, part of me is quite tempted to think it'd be quite fun to call it a European championship because it would hark back to the 1930s when you had the European championship for drivers and that was the days of Caracciola, Rosemeyer, uh these drivers winning although there was a world championship briefly in 1925 uh, as well but yeah, it's still the World Championship. It'll be called the World Championship, and I don't think it will any way, shape, or form devalue uh, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes' achievement if they win it, or the achievement of of anyone else if they come to win it. Moving on to the next question, this is going to go back to you, Mark. Why do you think Ferrari agreed to the new aero rules and the engine chassis freezes? If they knew they had such a dog of a car, this and likely next year, surely they could have vetoed it. That's from Will Walsh. Uh, two two parts to that question, really. The first on the aero side, um, when they agreed to it, of course, it wasn't going to be for two seasons. It was only going to be for one. And they reasoned that um, to do a, an all-new concept, which would have been you know, an, an outwash type of car like um, Red Bull or most of the others have done, including Mercedes, um, you'd be starting from scratch. You'd be starting from the the bottom of the mountain, to borrow James Allison's phrasing, um, on your knowledge, because the whole car is developed around that uh, the front wing concept. So there was very little point in uh, doing um, an all-new concept with just one year, um, and they figured that uh, they could put all their efforts into the, the new aero, for, which was going to be 2021. Um, but uh, subsequently, of course, the um, coronavirus um, cha- changed that, and really, just for the for the general for the general good of the sport, they they agreed that they would um, go with it for an, for another year. Um, in terms of the engine, well, the the, the only change has been um, a tech directive. The the regulations haven't actually changed. The directives have changed, and 
um, you couldn't really uh, do your, do your uh, Ferrari couldn't have had its um, oh, it couldn't have overruled a tech directive. That's just a more specific interpretation of an existing regulation. They couldn't really veto that. So the the engine one they didn't have the power of veto on that. So many different kind of inputs to this question, aren't there? Because they had the wider good of the sport and everything they had to look at. But we should note that as well, when it came to the uh, new rules for 2022, there was some talk about deferring them a further year, which, of course, Ferrari was also dead against. So uh, they, they kind of, in terms of the, the next couple of years, they ceded as much as they felt they could, but then they, they held their, their ground, understandably so. Scott, question about stewarding for you, which is a, a bit of a hobby horse of yours, and justifiably so. Do you think that race stewards are nowadays inclined towards handing racing penalties during wheel-to-wheel battles based on the outcome of the incident rather than the actual offence? That's from Sadesh Pandey. Yeah, well, I, I think it's something that the FAA has acknowledged that that's important. I think they want to sort of try and avoid handing out penalties unless they feel it's absolutely necessary. And I, I do understand that logic um, because sometimes you can have like a really, um, you can have like a really, really good battle. It's a racing incident and it just sort of slightly goes awry. Um, and th- those are the moments where they want to basically, they want to try and encourage good racing. But the, the, the problem, problem I have with it is that as soon as you get into as soon as you get into consequence-driven decision-making, you you bias what exactly you're looking at in an incident. And consequences are always a result of action. And it should be the action that you're trying to stamp out, not not the consequence. So it, it's, a, it's a really tri- tricky thing to, to manage. But the bottom line is, if you have, if you have someone make uh, a very, very small error in battle, or even not necessarily an error in battle, but let's say you've got a pack of cars running towards uh, Austria is a good example. So down the hill towards turn four Austria, let's say you've got three or four cars in a midfield scrap, a couple of races in, and the car at the back of that group gets squeezed a little bit onto the dirty side of the track or whatever, locks up under braking, really, really tiny error, clips the car in front with their front wing, gives them a puncher, sends them into the other two cars. In one 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 absolutely tiny thing there has just sparked a chain reaction that's wiped three cars out of three other cars out of the Grand Prix. If you're doing that based on consequence alone, or con- based primarily on consequence, then that car at the back of that train is going to get a massive penalty because they've just taken out three cars. But actually, if you look at the incident objectively, you say, well, there's different circumstances at play there he's been squeezed or he's been put on a part of a track that he shouldn't have been forced onto and therefore that's what's actually the cause and therefore the consequences are are irrelevant. And it feels like that has generally been the sort of the root of the common sense behind a lot of decision-making over time. And a move away from that would be quite dangerous. I'm pleased to hear that the FIA seems to have basically not overruled the stewards from Austria because this decision stands but basically that 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 terrible move from Lance Stroll on Daniel Ricardo that resulted in both cars going off track but crucially no contact happening and Stroll got to keep the place and Ricardo was furious about it afterwards and and, and kept it up 
that Michael Mazzi, the race director, has now looked back at that and said that sort of move in the future should be punished. So they've gone back, they've reviewed it, they've said, okay, the stewards said one thing, but actually on review, we think they got it wrong. So here's the precedent going forward. That is not the precedent now. The decision is not the precedent for that kind of case. And that's really important because there were no consequences in terms of colliding in wheel-to-wheel battle there, but that doesn't mean there shouldn't have been a penalty. So it's that balance. You you can't go, you can't swing completely to consequence-driven decision-making, but you can never, I don't I don't think it, it's beneficial either to eliminate consequences from the decision-making process. I think what you do need with the stewards is for them to be allowed a little bit of flexibility to apply best judgment. And for example, you can apply the, the no harm, no foul principle sometimes. That, that, that's when the, the outcome does get can get factored into it. But once you've factored in the outcome, if you decide there should be a penalty, you have then got to look at the scale of the mistake and the error and the misjudgment. I think it's really important that they allow honest mistakes doing legitimate things with very, very small should we say, uh, scale of mistakes, which is what I thought Hamilton Albon in the first race was. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with you there, Ed. Um, I'll, I'll throw the next question to you. Uh, I apologise if I've got the, if I'm pronouncing the name horrifically. I think it's from Sai Ganesh who says, Renault showed good pace, but they aren't able to put in a good quality and race day. Is there a real struggle or are we looking at still a mid, mid-table finish? Because Ocon was flying in the wet and then he was struggling in the race. Yeah, it's been difficult for Renault so far. They've flattered to deceive. They've had some, in practice sessions, good performances where you think, yeah, they could be you know, bothering your, your McLarens, people like that. They've had their moments. But yeah, Hungary, for example, they were struggling with the tyres. They did wonder if the, the unexpectedly low temperatures went against them. It's true, Ocon's struggling a little bit in the dry. I think Hungary, things were slightly exaggerated because it was about 800th different in qualifying, which put Ocon on the on the wrong side of the grid and suddenly there's a seven place difference between them at the end of the first lap. Ocon's not doing as well as Ricardo and Ricardo's driving really well. But I think that exaggerated it. They they haven't really gone anywhere. I was I did a piece on the the race website uh, a few days ago which looked at Renault's performance and if you look at them they've closed a bit on the front but so's all of the midfield. If you compare Renault to its natural enemy, should we say, which is Renault powered McLaren, which is another upwardly mobile midfield midfield team that's also using the Renault engine. They're in a very, very, very similar position in terms of their def- deficit to McLaren. So you can't say they've gone nowhere because they've they've made the necessary performance leap to stand still. And the car is a chunk faster. It was just over half a second faster at the Red Bull ring and just over one second faster at, at the Hungara ring. So the car is demonstrably better. It has got more downforce. But there's no seismic change that suggests performance-wise things are, are dramatically different. The big question for me is whether they need a little bit more time to get on top of things. A big change in the car concept, that narrow nose. They struggled last season with getting the barge board area to have an impact on the overall performance of the car. That whole wider area is absolutely critical to development under the rules that we've had for the last few years. So they need to get the front end of the car working with the barge boards and then the rear, and they're still learning a little bit there. So I'll give them that. So they've done okay, but they're not necessarily always getting the best out of the car. But the fact is, if you show promising pace in practice but it's not there on quality and race day then your performance isn't really there is it and they just don't have that last little step to go so i'm interested to see how that they'll go they've got upgrades for silverstone so hopefully they'll do a little bit better but if you look on average pace they're there just ahead of alpha Tauri and a little bit behind that uh, that what you might call the thick of the midfield group so yeah difficult for for renault and everything they're doing now is vital for 
getting to the point where in 2022 they're capable of making a car to give Alonso the chance to fight for victory. So, yeah, it's it's not a disaster for Renault, but I've, I don't see anything this year that says anything's really changed. And actually their deficit to the front on absolute pace is about the same as it was in 2017. So uh, working very hard to stand still, unfortunately, for Renault. Uh, well, let's move back to you, Mark. We've got a question about engines. A nice, simple question to state, but perhaps a more complicated answer. Rick Waller asks if you could rank the four engine manufacturers in order based on performance and reliability. Now, he suggested Mercedes number one. Are you going to diverge from that? I'd go along with that. Um, they were, they've they've stepped up their advantage. Back end of last year, there was a lot of convergence. I mean, take Ferrari out of the equation because of questions about the legitimacy of that. But uh, the other three engines, then they'd converged, and by the end of last year, there was less than nine horse or less than ten horsepower. I think just over nine horsepower difference between um, the third, fourth, and fifth, and I think it was in the order of Renault, Mercedes, Honda. Um, whereas this year, Mercedes have clearly um, found quite a, quite a good chunk, and the others have more or less stayed still, and Ferrari have gone backwards heavily. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd go along with um, Mercedes comfortably at the head at the moment. I very much admire the fact you underline the Mercedes supremacy by putting the other third, fourth, and fifth. As if second place is vacant for the engine manufacturers. I thought that was uh, underlining things particularly well. But it's it's amazing, isn't it? Mercedes have set the standard in the in the 1.6-litre V6 turbo hybrid era, and they're still finding improvements. This era started in 2014. We're meant to be in vanishingly small diminishing returns, but still they're finding it. It's astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're just a fantastic um, organisation. And just strength and depth is, is, is amazing. Um, they came out the formula with a head start. You know, they they start they began it earlier. Um, they went through several really fundamental um, reiterations before they uh, settled on what they eventually came up with in fourteen, and that's been the basis of everything since. While the others have been scrabbling around, sort of spending a couple of years trying to understand what it, what about their concept is is the limiting factor. Um, and we're, we're still seeing a bit of that. Uh, and I think, really, it's um, just fundamentally at the root. It goes goes all the way back to the um, the, the greater research that, that they put in, the great R&D they put in in the years before this, this formula even began. Yeah, huge amount of credit deserved for everyone at uh, Bricksworth at, uh, at Mercedes who's worked on that. Now, on to Scott, a nice small simple question for you scott gregory higgins asks if you can explain the development token system and what we're likely to see happening yes i can explain it uh but i don't know what we're likely to see i'm going to follow up that question and say scott (laughs) please can you interpret the question as it was clearly meant and actually explain the token system yeah yeah of course um basically uh the the token system is uh, a method of uh, cost saving to, to limit upgrades on mechanical components, physical components, but ra- rather than aerodynamic components. So aero development is is free, but basically everything else gets allocated a value of one or two tokens, and each team's basically got two tokens to spend. Um, so you've got some parts that have uh, homologation uh, at different phases, and then basically you can only use your tokens, uh, you can use, un- you can only develop a part after its freeze date if you've chosen to use your tokens, basically. It's, it's quite a complicated system, lots of different deadlines. 
uh, at play, the first of which have, have, have now passed. So any team that wanted to spend its tokens on a part that's been homologated already, or I think is one of the, um, the basically the earlier batch of, of deadlines needed to have determined it already. Um, it, it's, it's quite clever because it basically seeks to stop teams spending loads of money rejigging suspension setups and re- redoing redesigning your gearbox and, and lots of big components but also small components the survival cell can't change for example um cra- front and rear crash structures that sort of thing so basically it's it should be very effective there's a couple of not loopholes in the system but a couple of very specific um allowances that have been included for example um one of the co- really controversial ones, uh, if you're not a racing point or an Alpha Tauri, is that um, basically if you're using year-old parts that you buy from another team, you're allowed to upgrade to the 2020 parts for next season without spending a token. Whereas if you're using current parts, so Haas, for example, using 2020 Ferrari bits on their 2020 car, if they want to then upgrade to the 2021 version of whatever ferrari decides to spend tokens on and build then Haas has to spend those tokens as well so it is very complicated it's difficult to really sort of verbalize it in a simple way in terms of what we're likely to see that'll be down to whatever the teams have internally decided are their weaknesses i think for example with the racing point if they had to spend their tokens on rear suspension i suspect they'd have spent their tokens on rear suspension because upgrading to the 2020 bit of mercedes kit would be a big performance gain um mclaren for example they have to spend their tokens on uh accommodating their new mercedes power unit they've got to rejig the the rear end architecture a little bit to to install the mercedes instead of the renault which is what they're using at the moment this year so that's what they have to use and they're sort of happy about it but not be, but not in the context of the racing point stuff because mclaren's contention is that they've had to give up their tokens to do this engine switch so why don't racing point have to give up their tokens to do a gearbox switch it's ingrained in the regs so it's not a loophole but it is controversial as for what the other teams are going to do i'm not entirely sure to be honest um i guess it depends on whether or not teams have identified and identified a fundamental beneath the surface weakness but aerodynamics are king in formula one aren't they so i suspect that's still going to be where a lot of the resource is put yeah the key was that this was to allow there to be a freeze while permitting big problems to be fixed and we should note aero development is is free but mark just to, i'm going to kind of give you a slightly supplementary question on this because a, a few people have asked if if next season's going to be basically be 2020 part two because of this control would you expect things to be pretty similar all round next year perhaps with the exception of a of a major and obvious change like the mclaren going to mercedes engines in broad terms yes but i think um certainly in that uh, group uh, McLaren, Renault, uh, Racing Point, it, it's all quite closely matched. And I don't think you would need much of a, a development um, swing in favour of one or the other to be in big, quite a different order of of the grid. Um, yeah, the, 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 we've got obvious um, hopes for Red Bull, although they can um, pull something more competitive out of this car that, it's, that it is just a a case of fine-tuning the arrow on it, and it's a, a problem that they've, um, you know, that, that just needs understanding and correcting rather than a fundamental problem that's inherent in, in the car, because if that's the case, then yes, it's going to carry through for the next two years. 
And similarly with Ferrari, we'd hope that the reset that they will be allowed on the power unit, that everybody will be allowed on the power unit for 21, um, should make a difference there as well. But broadly speaking, yes, I think um, the, the the broad outline of the competitive picture is is already been um, shown. That's that's going to be absolute music to the ears of Racing Point because obviously they they designed their 2020 car with inspiration from Mercedes, and the origin originally it was going to be basically a one hit wonder, wasn't it? Deploy it in 2020, but then have to develop an all new car anyway for the new technical rules. But the new technical rules get pushed back. This year's car rolls over. And suddenly Racing Point gets two years using a pink Mercedes instead of one. And who knows, maybe it'll also be able to get a free upgrade um, to the to the 2020 trick Mercedes rear suspension uh, as well. But um, in, a, in, in yet another example of a brilliant uh, transition in Ed, I'm going to go to you with the next question from Banterous Bear on Twitter, who says, given Racing Point's successes in using the W10 design, why don't more teams drop the high rake approach and look towards a Mercedes style? Well, again, there's a few little parts to that question. Before I answer it properly, I'd like to go off on a slight tangent and just say that the whole question... Shock. (laughs) The whole question of copying is not as straightforward as it may seem because not only do you have to recreate the car you're basing your car on, you've got to understand how it works, how it interacts. And these these cars are hugely complicated. Everything connects to... To, to other parts as it were both aerodynamically and in terms of the interaction of the suspension the attitude of the car all these things you can very very easy kind of try and create a simulacrum of of another car or another car concept but it doesn't mean it's going to work and i've been really impressed that not only is that racing point very quick it also seems to be pretty benign it, it suits the drivers they can attack in it it gives them confidence i think racing point have done a beautiful job there because copying the car is not as easy as, as it sounds. It's not like you're just leaning over to the, uh, going back to a school days analogy, the desk next to you and, uh, and copying the answers. You've got, to, you've got to really understand it. So having said that, which isn't really answering the question, there are different ways you can approach concept and your trade-off. You know, we were asking, people were asking why Mercedes wasn't going down the high-rate concept not so long ago. And James Allison has always said, well, there are potential gains from doing that, but there's also potential losses. And it's all about the overall package. And it's not necessarily a case, well, in fact, we can emphatically say that high-rate versus low lower rake. And the Mercedes does carry rake, and it has gone up a little bit uh, in the past few years, not monstrously. It's not like one's correct and one's wrong. It's It's uh, not a binary thing it is true the high rake is potentially has that little bit of extra capacity to get a bit more performance of it because of the, the angle of attitude of the car but it's way more tricky to, to get it to work and i don't think it's a monstrous difference so i think it would be odd if teams are understanding how their how their concept work and they could make it work for them to make a, a dramatic and spectacular change should we say because Ultimately, it's not really these days your design concept fundamentally that does it. It's how well you implement it, how well you get everything working together. It's getting everything right, dotting all the I's, crossing all the T's. So I don't think you can fundamentally say that that concept is automatically better. Having said that, it has won consistently under these regulations, the previous set of regulations. So... um, you could argue there's uh, there's something in that, but uh, ultimately, copying is not as easy. 
it's it's not just a question of jack the rear end up and you've got a, a high rate car jack the rear end down and you've got a uh, a low rate car and if you're a team like Haas and you've got loads of 2020 ferrari bits in your car for the non-listed parts you've got to follow the ferrari higher rake approach and racing point basically has, has been sent down this path because that's the mercedes approach it's got the mercedes uh, gearbox and rear suspension etc so it's logical for it to go down a, a pathway that that works for for the car they're copying uh, obviously but yeah this whole debate about copying is is not going to go away so we might see some more teams trying to copy the best team but things change quickly in formula one and you might find yourself being caught out and of course for 2022 clean sheet of paper you've got nobody's work to copy from so it's all down to your own understanding and interpretation of the regulations at least where they allow you some leeway Uh, mark moving back to you now this is another copying and engine related question from graham howie saying uh we've seen the design of the mercedes power units going by what racing point have done with the car why don't ferrari trace their design so this is about copying uh engine power unit package uh designs um the copying of the the, the type that racing point has done is, is of the surfaces of the car so which is um, defining the aerodynamics to a large extent and implying what the internal surfaces are from um, photographs. You couldn't really do that with an engine, with it's um, all about the um, internals. All, you, all you'll get from photographs are the uh, external architecture of the engine. Um, so that, that, that's not any particular secret. How, how, there's plenty of pictures and have been for the last few years of, of each of the engines and what they look like. The secrets are inside. The secrets are to do with... Um, you know the, the way the, the the mixture is flowing and how it's cooled and uh, what the combustion is and all all those things. So they, they, that's not something you you would capture um, from a photograph in the same way as you would from a aerodynamic surface. Yeah, absolutely. By definition, aerodynamic surface is interacting with the air, isn't it? So it's uh, it's visible and you can make a stab at its function. But yeah, much more complicated with the uh, the engine. Scott, we do have another racing point related question, which comes from Rafael De Nito. He says, while Racing Point have been showing incredible pace in practice and sometimes qualifying, their race pace has not been that great. Is there a reason why they're not able to replicate the pace on race day? Uh, there are probably a few reasons. Uh, the first is that, as um, as Mark touched on a few answers ago, they, uh, the Mercedes engine has taken a really nice step this year, and that is in the back of the Racing Point, and I think that's got the most potent qualifying mode on the grid. So I think it does help. Um, I think that's what probably puts Racing Point, as well as doing a good job with their with their interpretation of what Mercedes did last year aerodynamically. Um, they've obviously got a well balanced car, and when you've got a well balanced car that um, has a really nice engine in the back, especially in qualifying, you've got a very potent one lap machine. There's an argument to be made that the Racing Point is fundamentally a very strong qualifying car and therefore is a bit weaker relative to its opposition on Sundays. It's not necessarily that Racing Point falls back. It's that the others sort of make a step relatively on Sundays because the engines are a little bit more equal and maybe they've got slightly better cars on high fuel than they do on low fuel. So I think that's one part of it. Uh, Second part is sort of circumstance, fortune, whether or not you've, um, you've got the brakes or not. Um, I think, for example, Lance Stroll had the gearbox sensor issue that, that hobbled him in the first race and caused him to retire. Uh, they had a nightmare qualifying session in the second race, so they started well down in because of the wet and still both charged through to fight for top six positions. And Sergio Perez may well have beaten a Red Bull on merit there. 
Um, so, so there's that. And then I think a third, uh, a third element, a third reason, slightly controversial is their, their, their drivers haven't done a good enough job. Um, you know, Stroll wasn't as strong as Perez in the second Austria race. Perez drove magnificently, but he was then the architect, not of his downfall, but of his setback late in the race because slightly ill-judged attempt to pass Albon broke his front wing and 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 cost him um and then in the hungarian grand prix uh stroll was i thought stroll did a good job but i don't think he did a great job uh in the race i feel like he he left a bit on on the table he grew frustrated at times he wasn't quite as um proactive at at changing his his fortunes as he could have been um so he still did a good job but I, i think there was potentially a podium on the cards there and perez obviously was a bit under the weather it seemed in qualifying in hungary and then in the race, bad start. Um, I think that might have been grid position assisted, but uh, still a bad start. Um, and he also went off track, didn't he? Um, w- when the conditions were really tricky, when everyone had changed to slicks on a damp and dry, but dry in track, but he still went off and it was still a mistake. So just, I think there's, a, I think there's various factors. It's just a case of they, they lose a little bit of their advantage on race day. Uh, I think some circumstances haven't gone quite in their favour, but the drivers haven't extracted the most from it either. Yeah, I think there's a bit more to come. But the pace in stereo, as you pointed out, was probably the uh, the really key one. Yeah, um, th- there's a suggestion. I think like Mercedes boss Toto Wolff said that um, that the racing point is, was quicker than the Mercedes in some corners um, in, in Budapest. And he reckons there'll be a tough nut to crack at times uh, this season. I don't personally think Racing Point are going to be in a position to fight for a win outright. Maybe they'll be in a position to to, to get one with circumstances going in their favour. But the, obviously one of the big questions is a question that we posed after the race in Hungary about whether Mercedes could go unbeaten. And that's Adam Dickinson's question to you, Ed, which is will Mercedes win every race this year? I'm going to say no. Can they win every race? Absolutely. They've got the performance too. But I'm just saying no based on the fact that they need to have a season where nothing fundamentally goes against them, where the drivers don't come together, where they don't have unreliability, where there's not freak conditions that put them out of position on track. Yeah, Alfa Romeo did it in 1950, the first year of the, the World Championship. But beyond that, it's something that doesn't usually happen in, in terms of a, a sort of what might be called a conventionally long season these days, 15, 16 plus races. McLaren came close in, in 88, but Senna missed out the last few laps of the Italian Grand Prix after colliding with Jean-Louis Schlesser's Williams. So that there's loads of things there waiting to to trip you up. History suggests something will catch them out somewhere. They'll have a race like like Germany last year when just everything goes wrong. But if it's going to take something like that, I expect Red Bull will get stronger. They're not going to be at the level they were in Hungary, certainly uh, on a consistent basis. And Verstappen was still up in second place there. So probably not, but they can. And, and I would, I think it would be a great thing for them to aim to try and achieve a great motivational force for them. And if they did it, which is not impossible it would be a, a, just take your hats off to them. Yeah, it might be a bit predictable, but what an achievement that would be. I just think it would be a continuation of the um, the lack of almost respect to a point that Mercedes gets for its dominance because you, I bet you'd have loads of people jumping in saying that there's an asterisk attached to it because the season's shorter. I bet people would immediately try to discredit it. No, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to have that. I don't think this is going to be a discredited season. 
it's going to be plenty. No, of no, races. I don't. I don't think it will. I don't think it. Like you can legitimately argue that, but I guarantee lots of critics will. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, yeah, that can happen, and ultimately, Lewis Hamilton may have the best car under him, but ultimately, you can only beat what's in front of you, and he's part of that success. And it's down to everyone else to raise their game. And we're only three races in. We've only had a few weeks of racing, so. Let's not write off the season just yet. I think we'll see quite a lot more interesting storylines and unusual weekends uh, to come, particularly with the fact there's talk about experimenting with race formats uh, uh, later in the season. So uh, let's see what happens. Uh, well, thanks very much, Scott and Mark. I will say goodbye and good luck to you two now because we shall move on to uh, to other matters with, uh, with another guest in a moment. But yeah, we will, I'm sure, hear from you again after the British Grand Prix this weekend. Thank you very much. We've got a new occasional segment to introduce today, which will keep an eye on the drivers making an impact in the junior categories. It's called the F1 Radar, and it means welcoming Valentin Harunji to the podcast for the first time. So I should say hello, Moscow. Hello. Now let's get straight into it. I'm going to make a wild guess and suggest that looming large on your radar this week is a certain Ferrari contracted driver, but perhaps not the one people immediately think of. Uh, You know, I think by this point... Some people might immediately think of him over the others, given how the past few weekends in Formula 2 have gone. It's, of course, Robert Schwartzman. And that this has nothing to do with me being based in Moscow. I'm pretty sure he's from St. Petersburg, so warring cities. But uh, he's been very, very, very good at the start of 2020, perhaps better than... Well, not he would have imagined in his wildest dreams, because he's a, he's a fairly cocky guy, but I think better than most of us will have imagined. Obviously, he leads the Formula 2 championship right now as a rookie and already is being talked of as a potential Formula 1 2021 candidate. Yeah, certainly with the Ferrari-controlled seat at Alfa Romeo, he's a, an obvious contender for that. With, of course, Mick Schumacher, who's fourth in the championship, uh, another one in contention. Uh, it's it's looking very Formula 1 junior-y in, in F2 at the moment. I think pretty much all of the top nine have got some kind of affiliation, with the exception of Filippo Djurgovic. Callum Eilert, of course, is in second place, and he's uh, he's Ferrari-affiliated, uh, of course, as well. So it, it's been a good start for Ferrari with three of the top four. Yeah, and I think four of the top six and... Alesi is also there somewhere, although not quite as high up. It, it could actually be quite awkward for Ferrari come the end of the season in case, let's say, Eilat finishes second, Schwartz, uh, first, Schwartzman finishes second, Schumacher finishes third. The guy in third is the one they're going to want to promote for marketing, but what do you do with the two guys ahead of him? Could be, could be a very difficult situation PR-wise. And honestly, it's, it's one that I can very much envision happening. Uh, now, to, to say a bit more about Schwartzman and the fact that it's not been a massive surprise that he's in first place right now, but it will be a somewhat bigger surprise to me if he manages to hang on to the championship. Uh, Schwartzman, in the past, maybe ever since he switched to the Pirelli category, so ever since he started in the F3 that was GP3, he's, he's looked very much like a race-based specialist, which is not to denigrate him in any way. He's been incredible in race trim conditions he's very assured very good at making his way through the pack very good at putting the pressure on uh but the one lap prodigious pace it's i don't want to say it's been lacking because he's, he's still a quick qualifier and earlier in his career he was actually pretty standout in terms of pole positions but it's currently in f2 what he's showing and maybe even what he showed in f3 last year it suggests that it's a vulnerability compared to his race trim and looking back at your F2 and GP2 champions of the past few years, going back 
as far as I'd say at least Jolie and Palmer in, 20, in 2014, every single one of those champions, your Gasly, your Leclerc, your Russell, they were the guys to beat over one lap. And Schwartzman's yet to qualify higher than sixth. But at the same time, he's got two feature race wins from that. So I guess it's uh, it's a bit swings and roundabouts. But it, but it is really interesting, isn't it? Because we've got so many of the Ferrari-affiliated drivers uh, up there, as you say, the, the question over the Alpha seat. Now, Ferrari, obviously, they don't have a controlled seat at Alpha, the one that Giovinazzi's currently in for nothing. So I guess they need to decide which of those, that group of drivers, obviously Marcus Armstrong is the other one, has the, the greatest potential, don't they? But it's interesting that Ferrari has got the embarrassment of riches at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, but it, it was it was somewhat predictable, and I think they'll they'll probably count themselves fairly lucky that Armstrong's having a a clear rookie season that he's not going to be ready at the end of the year, even though he's another quality prospect. Um, honestly, I I suspect they may be a little surprised by how well Schwartzman has done because in the first couple of seasons of his career, he he's looked good, but he's not looked like an obvious F one shoe in the way he does now. Um, the Alpha seat, I think there's still a lot of expectation that no matter what happens, that will go to, to Mick. And Mick Mick has had a fine start to the season, but he's, he is being currently overshadowed by his teammates. And uh, the only way you can avoid, if that continues, the only way you can avoid, uh, I wouldn't call it an embarrassment, but a sense of injustice there is if, if the Alpha seat goes to Mick, then you have to find a Haas seat for Robert or something like that, at least in my eyes. Yeah, very much so. It's uh, performance has got to be the key thing, uh, hasn't it? I mean, looking at, at Schumacher's season, he's had a couple of podiums. Where does he need to up his game at the moment? He, he generally in F two looks pretty good without ever quite convincing you he's going to get into that. Well, convincing me, I should say, he's going to break into that absolute top catch. So I guess he's just got to find that last little edge, a bit like he did in F three. Well, he's, I think he's had more or less the edge on Schwartzman over one lap, but you'd expect that with an extra year of experience. And if I'm if I'm being completely honest, last year uh, Schumacher's an F2 rookie did not convince me at all because it was not a vintage Formula Two uh, grid. It was not the strongest one in the championship's history by any stretch of the imagination. And to finish only, I want to say twelfth, I believe, even with all the caveats that not everything worked quite right with the car always or with the with the operation side of it, but still, he had to show a little bit more. I think he's actually been fairly convincing this season. There was a fire extinguisher thing that robbed him of an extra 10 points or so, but again, if, if not for the, for the name attached, then currently we would not be talking of him as a front runner for 2021. And we are because of, of the name. And, you know, he probably does not want to make Formula One because of the name alone he wants to he wants to prove he's ahead of this other ferrari crop not only ahead of schwartzman but ahead of eilot who's been qualifying oh so well so far in in f2 this season and is sort of emerging as a outside option maybe outside going by his past season but very much one of the options going by his current form well his key thing is consistency isn't it because he's always been a driver with prodigious speed but he's made mistakes so he's, his results are consistent so far he's got the most consistent set of results of everyone admittedly he hasn't had mechanicals in the way but that's quite promising for a driver of, of his type isn't it he's had a, a very interesting career i lots to the point where he i think he emulated verstappen in debuting with the same team in f3 a year after right out of carding but it Obviously, didn't work out anywhere near as well. But it was clear that on his day, Callum Eilat is 
as quick as anyone and quicker. And ultimately, given that he'll see in the Ferrari Academy an example of another guy, Schwartzman, who's made leaps and bounds since his F2 de- since his junior single seater debut, there's there's no reason why Eilert can't do the same. There's no reason why he can't have already done the same, because he he does look much better this season than a couple of years past, I would say. And of course, he's got a little bit of F1 experience. He tested the Alpha in Spain last year, had quite a big crash at the uh, at the end of the day at turn three. That was the the only downside, but always been a, a quick driver. I guess the Renault guys are interesting. Christian Lundgaard's up in third in the championship. Guan Yuzhu uh, in eighth place. He's had one podium so far. Now, there was a lot of talk when Alonso was signed about what does this say about the Ferrari Academy. We were hoping both of these drivers could kind of take that step forward this year and... Zhu, it looks a little bit similar, but he's had a bit of bad luck. Lundgaard's looking about where he needs to be. He's he's established as a proper front runner, certainly. Zhu uh, obviously had the twenty-five points. He was robbed of twenty-five points in the opening race by a mechanical problem. But also, maybe in the other two race weekends, you would have expected him to do maybe a little bit more. But equally, I think. He's so far he's been looking good, and if he can make up those for those points lost later down the line, uh, he can booster bolster his Formula One credentials. But I think talk of Renault having ever disrespected any of its juniors by signing Alonso was a bit of a bit reactionary, a bit premature. Joe might be an F1 prospect already, but he's not on the same level as Alonso and Lungard. As you know, he's clearly got the pace, and it, there's a good reason he's very highly rated. But I, I don't think he's ready, and I don't think he believes he's ready. Uh, which is, you know, all there's to it. it. You can criticize Renault's decision to sign Alonso on money targets, etc. But the the junior angle has never been particularly convincing, and I think this season just shows that in F2. Obviously, the the Red Bull F2 drivers had a fairly uh... Not a very obtrusive start to the season. Uh, Yuki Tsunoda has had that second place. Jihan Daruvala, who's of course new to Red Bull there, they're both at Carlin. Tsunoda looks good, doesn't he? But needs to kind of make make it convincing that he can be a consistent force on the step up to F2. But that Red Bull, given that they they may well end up wanting to change things around at AlphaTauri, the fact that there's nobody making a compelling case at that level yet will be a bit of a concern for them, won't it? Yeah, Tsunoda, Tsunoda looks good, but, you know, sort of occasionally good. He's also not. I d- I'm not convinced that Carlin's at the same level of team as, well, as Prima, obviously, but also as some of maybe the other top tier ones. It's it's a bit, it's always a bit hard to tell in Formula 2. And I think, uh, ultimately, I think Tsunoda will do enough to convince Honda, to convince Red Bull to take a punt. But super license points may become a a sticking point. There's also, of course, Yuri Vips, who's doing a joint Super Formula and Formula Regional European program, which looks like a bid to get some Super License points under his belt. And I imagine if he clears the threshold, he'll be in. And in in FIA F3, Red will have uh, Dennis Hauger, who was on the podium uh, for the first time this past weekend and who's straight out of F4, obviously still a ways to go. When until he can graduate to Formula One, but he he looks a genuinely exciting, uh, exciting driver. There's a crop of F4 graduates coming into the F3 level now that are that we're going to be hearing a lot more of in the next 
this year, really. Hauger, Theo Porcher, who's a Zauber, uh, Zauber junior, and I suspect Arthur Leclerc, Charles' brother, who was rivaling those two guys in F4 last year. Yeah, of course, uh, the Super Formula season doesn't get underway for another month or so, does it? It's at the end of August, so uh, interesting to see how Vips comes on in particular. Is there anyone else on F2 level you particularly want to talk about before we have a quick look at F3? Obviously, there's someone like Nikita Mazepin who's got good backing behind him but needs a good season to get the Super Licence points. He's sort of had one result and not a lot else so far this season. Yeah, Mazepin's been hard to gauge. So he has the one result that was made possible by the alternate strategy that also made Schwartzman winning by like 20 seconds possible. So it's 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 hard to read anything into that so much. It was a good strategy choice. Nobody's going to take that away from him and his team. And it is it is a new team. So any good result they can get in this these initial rounds will be will be a boon. But again, for Mazepin, it's a case of can you get over the super license points because you have the budget? Uh, there were times in his career where he's looked really quite handy, starting, I think he's a world karting vice champion or something like that. I'm not 100%, but he's, there were moments in F3, there were moments in Formula Renault, but those, and there was, of course, the season where he finished runner up in, in GP3, but I don't think it's ever been, sustained enough and conclusive enough to where again we probably would not be talking about him right now if not for his budget let's have a look down to f3 then oscar piastri is a standout there so far top of the championship of course a renault driver so again f1 junior to the fore there is he the driver that's impressed you most so far or Theo Pichet? perhaps he's he's had a a strong season after a, an iffy start uh, well, to, to start with Pochet, Pochet's first win was slightly fortunate because it was Jake Hughes and uh, Liam Lawson colliding right in front of him and opening the opening the gates, basically. And I think it was a safety car after that, and he just won under the safety car. But his second win was very, very convincing. So I think he's he might have already clicked with F3. And F3 is just a really tough grid this year. So he, if, if he's already on top of it, that's very promising for the future. But yeah, I've been... I've been massively impressed with Piastri with the caveat that he drives for Prema, which in F3 is unbeatable, basically. Was unbeatable last year. They locked out the first three places in the championship with Schwarzman, Armstrong and Jahan Daruvala. And this year they still they still look to have the cars to beat, or maybe the drivers to beat. For all we know, maybe their lineups are just always better. But I think clearly the operational side is also... They have the edge. Uh, it's it's not going to be as runaway as last year, as far as I can see right now. But Piastri has certainly made more of Prema's advantage than his teammates currently. And he's he's a Renault junior who's managed by Mark Webber, I believe. And he's another one of those, an, another case of Renault benefiting from the fact that they have Formula Renault Euro Cup producing a ready-made supply of juniors. A Piastri was somewhat of a surprise winner of it last year he beat victor martins who was a a renault junior then but was dropped piastri i believe was picked picked up instead and martins aside certainly the decision to pick up piastri looks to have been fully rewarded he looks to have kicked on another step he looks really good obviously f3 being f3 we've had quite a range of winners already uh, anyone lower down the order Catching your eye, Liam Lawson, Red Bull driver. He's, he's had a win in a sprint race. <laughs> There's lots of drivers just sort of buried in the midfield morass because F3 is A, a deep field, and B, a range of teams, shall we say. 
yeah, ever since the the sort of the merger between European F3 and FIF3 and GP3, and even going back to the culling, if you like, of the regional F3 series, culling may be overdramatic, but you know what I mean. Uh, it's it's been a a very deep grid, and right now it's it, it just it looks punishingly deep because you look at this list of names and it's 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 good drivers all around, like all of them have accomplished something at least, like. You know, Jake Hughes has had a rough start to the season. Very rough. He has half a point to his name, and he's had a few incidents. But this is a former junior single-seater champion we're talking about. Uh, BRDC F4, he won at some point. He's in 18th, and he has a ton of experience. And it's not just because he's had it rough. It's because this is a brutally tough field where it's all down to fine margins and partially down to equipment, I suspect. But just... Just stuff. Uh, if if one name that's sort of maybe under the radarish to mention, and again, not because I'm based in Moscow, believe me, but um, Alexander Smolyar was in pole position in the Hungaroring uh, last weekend. He's another guy who's from Formula Renault and is a rookie this season. And to get pole in in your rookie season in F3, it's a good result. And obviously, then at turn one, he was wiped out. Not not his fault. So yeah, certainly uh, we're going to get a lot more data and feel for the season with uh, the rapid fire run of races to come so we're going to come back to the f1 radar on a on a kind of semi-regular basis should we say certainly the next one will be between the races and, and val will be on top of it as always as you can tell he's very knowledgeable about these matters so thanks very much val cheers and thanks very much to everyone for listening do check out the race website that's at the race.com and don't forget the hyphen loads to read on there about the latest goings on in formula one indycar esports moto gp formula e check out our other podcasts including the gary anderson f1 show and bring back v10s we're plotting a second series of that and do check out our videos on youtube as well just search for the race and do join us next time which will most likely be after the british grand prix (laughs) 